in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan River were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us that we might see and hear and understand. We confess that we are not able to do so apart from your Spirit's gracious work in our lives, and so we pray that you would now, by your Spirit, do that for us. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your law, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated. Continuing on, I, I've said this every week, and once again, we're not doing a chapter a week, but we're still doing a chapter a week. So it's just the way that the, the text has been uh, kind of broken down. I wanted to keep these two things together as well. So we're looking at all at chapter 3. But you see that from chapter 2, where we, we, we leave Jesus as, as a, an infant, a toddler, we jump now ahead about 30 years. Matthew does this, unlike some of the other gospel writers, leaving out all the things that we wonder about Jesus. What was he like as a child, as a young man, as a teenager? What were his experiences? Most of that, except a few things that are mentioned in the other gospels, are left unknown to us. What Matthew sees fit to include in his gospel, written again primarily to a Jewish audience, is that he focuses on the fulfillment of prophecy. He continues to come back to that, that the prophets had spoken of one who would come who would prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of the Messiah. John the Baptist was that person that was spoken of in the prophet Isaiah. 
And yet he was more than what we might think of as one who would prepare the way. Uh, We might think of an opening act who would get up before someone to kind of warm the crowds up to then enter the stage. And that's not at all what John's task was to do. He had a more significant role. Uh, He was the final prophet under the old covenant. The final prophet who would usher in that the one who would bring with him the new covenant. Talk about old and new. We see this certainly in Scripture, but it wasn't entirely new in the sense that it, it wasn't that it hadn't been spoken of. The prophets had been speaking of this. God had been foretelling of the plan that was going to come to place ever since the garden when he said he would send one who was a seed of a woman, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. And so this rescue plan that had been put in place before the foundations of the earth, spoken of by the prophets, was now unfolding. So John the Baptist's role, one foot in the old, one foot in the new, yet his role is to prepare the way and then get out of the way for the Messiah. John, the gospel writer, includes this account in John chapter 3. He says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John the Baptist answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from the heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This was the job of John the Baptist, making a path for the coming king and getting out of the way. We read one of the prophecies that that spoke of this one, this preparer of the way this morning in Isaiah chapter 40. That's the one that Matthew quotes in verse 3. We'll look at that more in a minute. But there are other prophecies about John the Baptist, including Malachi 3.1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then later on in Malachi, at the very end of his message, which providentially is the final words in the Old Testament, if you were to flip back just a couple of pages, you would see this. The uh, angel comes to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and quotes this prophecy from Malachi in speaking to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, before he was born. He says, And he will turn many away, or I'm sorry, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this preparing work is what John the Baptist has come to do. And it is it includes both preaching a message of repentance and a call to baptism. It is a turning of the hearts, exactly what Malachi prophesied that he would do, to prepare a path, prepare the hearts. They become the path for the Messiah who would come and, and preach a message, repent and believe. So now looking in verse 1, we see Matthew again fast forwards about three decades to a time when John the Baptist is now fully engaged in ministry. 
And he, we see him in the wilderness in Judea. This is not the desert that we a lot of times see in the picture. It's, it was more of a badlands kind of area. If you look on Google Earth, you can see kind of the makeup of the land. Not very habitable, not really great for agriculture. And I think the point of mentioning this is the fact that all the crowds came out to them. If you pictured on a map where Jerusalem is and where the Dead Sea is, where the Jordan empties out into the Dead Sea is about where John was, about 20 miles east of Jerusalem. So it's significant then that this is where John was, and yet it says the people from Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding areas were coming out to hear and to be baptized by John the Baptist. His message in verse 2 is very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word for repent, I I read quite a bit this week on how many think that this is not the best translation uh, in English for the word that's used here. I think it's fine, although it certainly conveys more than what we might think of in our understanding of repentance. I think when we say repent, we often think of confession. If someone is to repent of something, they confess of what they've done. That idea is certainly there, but it is much more than that. It's more than just the things that we associate with confession of grief and regret of tears and apologies, of humility and penitence. The words here, uh, are that, that the word rather here that's used has a more positive side as well as that negative side that we might think of, and that is the idea of bearing good fruit. So it's more of a holistic picture of conversion. And John goes on to explain this to the scribes and the Pharisees who come out when he says to them, keep, you know, uh, bear fruit rather in keeping with repentance. In other words, What you're doing here in this act of confessing your sins is more than a call simply to acknowledge that you're a sinner, but it is really a holistic picture of conversion that you would uh, go forward in bearing good fruit that is in keeping with repentance. So when we see both the positive and the negative components, we understand that a, a biblical concept of repentance is that of turning from sin and turning to God. It's changing direction, but it's not simply changing any direction to another direction. It is changing from wrongdoing to turning to God to love, trust, and obey Him. And so those who who pit John's preaching against later the apostles' preaching, I think really is unfair. They actually had more in common than not, although John, we have to remember, had his feet planted in the Old Covenant. He was a preparer of the way. He was announcing what was yet to come where the apostles came proclaiming what had already come. And so there was a preparing work, a looking forward uh, 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 task uh, that he was given to what Jesus would come and do. The one who would come that he was preparing the way for would accomplish what his message pointed to, that is atonement for sin. So his call, because it was on the other side of the cross, didn't have the fullness of the explanation of what the gospel call later would because Jesus had yet to go to the cross, and yet it pointed to the same object. It wasn't a different message in that sense. It was the same message. Repent and turn to God. He was preparing the way for what Jesus would do. We have to keep in mind, too, that Jesus preached the same message. Repent and believe. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached the same thing. It was appropriate that this was the message preached in preparation for the cross. The turning to God that is called for in repentance is reflected in the acknowledgement that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the second part of his message. The kingdom of God is, uh, or the kingdom of heaven rather, is the kingdom of God. Those terms, the kingdom by itself, are used all synonymously to mean the same thing. And what is about to happen 
at the coming of Christ through his ministry, death, and resurrection is a manifestation of this kingdom. The old is passing away. As Jesus would later say, Behold, I am making all things new. And so the people are alerted here. Matthew's use of behold again and again is really look. Look and see. Be aware that you might perceive the kingdom that is coming, that you might understand what the kingdom is. Matthew then in verse 3 points back to the, the prophecy, which we've seen Matthew do a number of times. This is a big part of his gospel writing. This time to Isaiah chapter 40, which speaks of the coming uh, one who would prepare the way, John the Baptist. The immediate context, which we're familiar with having just gone through Jeremiah, is that Isaiah is announcing that a day is going to come where the Lord is going to lead his people out of exile, out of Babylon, back across the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. You know, the, all that, that, that 40 contains about, you know, valleys being lifted up and mountains being made a plain and all of that did occur. That was the immediate fulfillment, the immediate context of which Isaiah spoke and the immediate fulfillment when the people returned from Babylon. But Matthew, now through the Spirit's inspiration, we've seen this so many times in prophecy, there is often an immediate fulfillment and a far-off fulfillment. And Matthew explains to us here the far-off fulfillment that John the Baptist would come and prepare the way for the Lord to lead all of his people from their spiritual exile into their true and forever home with him. So this is John the Baptist, the preparer's voice. Matthew then goes on to describe his clothing. He wore something similar to that of Elijah. Uh, Elijah's clothing is described in 2 Kings 1.8 as he, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, almost exactly the way John the Baptist's clothing is described here. John came in the spirit of Elijah. We saw that in John chapter 3, the passage that I read. We saw the prophecy of it in Malachi. Luke 1.17 also mentions it. So it's appropriate for the people to see that physical connection. But even if they missed that, they would have seen the connection in John's lifestyle, that he was, he was not coming to preach to the praise of men. He was not coming to impress people. He didn't dress to impress as many do today. He lived meagerly, not to earn his righteousness, but to signify who he trusted, that the Lord was his provider. We see this in his diet as well. I used to think when I was a kid that John the Baptist only ate locusts and honey, and I didn't think it was so gross. I just thought it would get really old to eat the same thing over and over. But what's being described here, um, and I won't go into the whole eating bugs and what, what's coming, great source of protein, all that. But my point is, it wasn't all that John ate. Uh, Matthew's just recounting, this is what he was known for, that he, he foraged. He looked to the Lord to provide for him and whatever he could forage there in the wilderness of Judea. He certainly ate more than that. But the point was is that he was relying on God for even his diet. So his clothes were simple. His diet was simple. His lifestyle was simple to point that he was trusting in the Lord. Yet even though he was not trying to impress anyone, uh, he, he, he didn't have a marketing team, a branding team. He wasn't, you know, uh, on all the social medias. Yet the crowds continued to come out and out to see him. Verse 5 says they came from the Jerusalem, Judea, and the surrounding areas to hear his message and to be baptized by him. And in verse 6, that they were confessing their sins. There's really no true baptism without confession of sins. Uh, this was not merely a purification ritual. Uh, that we find in, in many religions, in many parts of history, in many cultures, even including periods of Judaism, this was uh, uniquely connected to a spiritual reality that as sinners, we need the stain of sin removed. 
If the waters of baptism weren't doing this, the waters weren't literally removing the stains of sin from these people, but pointing rather to a spiritual reality that through faith and repentance, sins were forgiven, a sign and a seal of that reality. The promise of his God or the promise of God to his people throughout history had been that he would deal with their sins. We saw this again in Jeremiah and the promise of the new covenant, chapter 31, that I will forgive their sins and I will remember their iniquities no more. We see this uh, in, the, in the psalm that we sang from this morning. As far as the east is from the west, so will I remove their, your iniquities from you. So God had been promising his people over and over. The sacrificial system, this is what it was pointing to again and again, that God would remove the sins of his people. But the first step in repentance is recognizing that we don't contribute anything to this. We don't help in the process. We can't do this ourselves. We are completely reliant upon God to do this and upon his mercy alone. And so this is an act of faith. It's an act of faith, coming to God in repentance, trusting him alone to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness, and then going forth bearing fruit that is keeping in keeping with repentance. This is what the, the, the preparer was calling the people to. Preaching and baptism, yet still looking forward. They were still uh, on the other side of the cross, looking forward to the Messiah who was about to appear shortly, uh, who would go on to live and accomplish these things. As he was conducting his ministry, the religious leaders get word, and this is our first appearance of, of them in Matthew's gospel. Uh, they, they come out and they're, they're checking things out. And Matthew doesn't go into a, a history of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but I think most of us know from, uh, from any time spent in the church who these two groups were and what they tended to do. Uh, first of all, they tended not to work together. They, had, they, had, they didn't have a lot in common. They had a lot of disagreement, and they were usually at odds with each other. The Pharisees were what we might call in our modern day the ultra-Orthodox, the Hasidim. That was their heritage that they, they tried so hard to get everything just right that they missed the forest for the trees. They were trying so diligently to follow the letter of the law that they missed the heart of the law altogether. They missed God himself. They missed the Messiah here. The scribes were on the other side, those who were more secularly minded. They, they dismissed the supernatural, including the resurrection. They were more in line to line up with the, the, the governing powers to cozy up to Rome and the occupiers to either gain power or maintain whatever power that they had. These two groups were usually at odds with each other, and yet here we see the beginning of what is to become for the next three years an unusual partnership among these two groups that they would eventually seek to destroy a common enemy. And what a sad stain this is that they they had the law, they were the experts in the law, and yet they totally missed it. They missed the Messiah. Both groups thinking they were absolutely right, which is a great lesson to us in our own day, to remain humbly teachable, always humbly teachable. Whatever their motives were in coming out, John doesn't pull any punches. He says to them, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You don't have to do a deep dive into the Greek to understand that John's not handing out compliments here. Uh, even if you, unlike me, don't, uh, if you do like snakes, unlike me, I don't like snakes. I see this as an insult, I think, in most cultures and at most times in history to be called a snake 
is not a compliment. Snakes are usually seen, they're ground crawlers, they're sneaky, they, they come up, I mean, even now, the, the good ones that are in the yard and so forth, when you cut the grass, will still make you do dance moves that no one thinks you can do when you see them. They're, they're cunning, they use stealth. Some are venomous, can harm you, can even kill you. So for John to call them snakes is significant, not because they were all necessarily wily, uh, but because their spiritual leadership was snake-like. They were deceived, and so they were deceptive each in their own way. They had been cunning and cruel. They had harmed the people of God instead of helping the people of God. And so here he poses the question, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, to point them to a judgment that is coming. This is the final judgment that is coming with the kingdom of heaven. But even in in Jesus' arrival, even though he's coming first as Savior in the great rescue plan, he would return as judge. But the role of judge, uh, particularly of God as judge, is not a novel idea. It's God's rightful prerogative because of who he is, because he is God to judge. And so, yes, there is a final judgment that is coming. That is what John is speaking of here. But there's also a present judgment in Jesus' arrival, in the giving of the law, in the effects of our sin, that sin is not left unjudged even in our current state. But there is a final judgment that's coming. He then challenges them to righteousness, that is true righteousness instead of rightness, which is how they had been living. True righteousness is always by faith. Think back to Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He trusted God faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. Rightness or self-righteousness fails to measure up. It often misses the mark anyway. Much like the Pharisees, we lose the forest for the trees. Rightness is often deceptive and blinding. Thinking that you are right about something that produces a fruit other than the fruit of the Spirit is often an indicator. It is a dashboard warning light that you might be in rightness and not righteousness. We might talk about anger as a righteous anger, and most of our anger is not righteous anger. We, we, we very rarely get that one right. But there is an indicator when anger wells up in our hearts, particularly when we know it's sinful. And yet we often do that when we think that we're right. It's an indicator light. Only when the fruit of the Spirit is manifest are we indicating that we are trusting God. So John then calls these blinded spiritual leaders to bearing fruit that is in line with or keeping with repentance. That is not just a turning from sin, that meaning of the word repentance, but a turning toward God. And this is not a new covenant idea. This is not a new idea that John brings to the picture. This is seen throughout the the Old Testament, the message of God to his people. We see this in places like Micah uh, 6.8. What does God require but to do justice and to love mercy or kindness and to walk humbly with your God? In the New Covenant, we might think of the Beatitudes or the fruit of the Spirit, as I mentioned earlier. True repentance produces fruit that is evidence of being changed or being converted. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the fruit that comes from true repentance. So when other fruit is coming out, it's an indicator that it's not true repentance, that we're not living by faith and trusting God. He then goes on to warn them about their, another presumption that they had, and that is that their physical lineage kept them safe or saved them. He says, Do not presume to say to yourselves in verse 9, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The mindset among these religious leaders was that they were safe, 
that they were saved by their physical heritage, but no one is saved according to the flesh. So John the Baptist refutes this idea by likely pointing to stones that were around them there in the wilderness in Judea by pointing out to them that, you know, just as God made Adam from the dust, he could take any of these stones if he wanted to and make children of Abraham. It's possible also that John had in mind the words of Ezekiel, speaking of the new covenant when he said, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then John returns back to the theme of judgment in verse 10. And, and, and he, he hits on this a couple of times in the following verses, beginning with this picture of an axe used to cut down a tree that does not bear good fruit. Uh, we can understand this even if we're not farmers. Trues, the, the trees that do not bear fruit or plants that don't bear fruit, we, you know, they, they serve no purpose but to be pulled out to throne and be burned. And that's the picture that what John is doing is preparing the way for the one who would come. And this one who would come would actually bear the judgment of the sins of those who trust him. But then he will come and execute judgment against the sins of those who reject him. He distinguishes between his baptism for repentance and the baptism of Jesus, which would, he would usher in with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is usually a, a, a picture of judgment, but here it is more the work of purification that the Spirit does in the lives of believers. And we know that when the Spirit was given at Pentecost, there was the manifestation of tongues of fire appearing above those who received Him by faith. In verse 11 then, John inserts the supremacy of Christ over Himself. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Part of this preparatory work, as we said earlier, uh, that, that John has is that of exalting Christ. He must increase, I must decrease, and he does that by placing himself in the role of the one who was of the lowest estate in that society, one who would untie or take off sandals or wash feet or carry them. And John humbles himself to magnify the Savior for who he is making a path. And then he returns to that picture of judgment in verse 12. This time, the Messiah is pictured with a winnowing fork in his hand. Now here, we don't have necessarily the the experience, even if we have farmed, of this kind of process because machines do all this work. But in this day, the act of winnowing was that separation of the wheat grain from the chaff, the useless part. And this winnowing fork was what was used to toss it up in the air so the wind would blow the chaff away. And so the chaff represents those who reject the Messiah who are judged in the unquenchable fire of hell. But the grain, notice, the grain he gathers into the barn for preservation. The grain is what's valuable. We have this promise of Jesus who said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The gospel call that we continue to proclaim is this, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. And for all who do so, even our death is called precious in the sight of the Lord. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Why? Because of the promise that we've been gathered into the barn. The promise of Jesus that I will lose nothing of what the Father has given me. The promise of Jesus that I will let no one snatch you out of my hand. That he holds on to that which is precious to him. We have this promise for all who are trusting in him. 
In verses 13 to the end, we see the baptism of Jesus by John. And it states in verse 13 that Jesus came to be baptized. That was his intent. It wasn't just he got there and the crowds were, you know, it made, it made him, you know, got caught up in the moment. Jesus came with the intention to be baptized by John. But John didn't know this. And John rebuffs Jesus. He questions him, pushes him away. He didn't want to do it. He says in verse 14, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? And I think all of us can understand this because the question arises here, why was Jesus baptized? We understand that John would question him. And the answer is found in the answer that Jesus gives to John. Verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Yes, Jesus was without sin. He did not need this purifying act to cleanse himself. He was free from sin. Yet he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Again, the prophet Isaiah foretold the work of Christ in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus submits to this act both to obey on our behalf representatively and as one who bears the iniquity of us all to fulfill all righteousness. This is why Jesus was baptized. And then it says when John baptized him, behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So here before their eyes and ears, uh, they, the, the, the triune God manifests himself miraculously. Uh, this, was, this was quite a treat for this, this crowd. The Spirit appears like a dove uh, coming down to rest upon the Son. And then the voice of the Father proclaims, the love and the pleasure within the Trinity of what is unfolding, that this great rescue plan that had been established before the world was made was now happening. It was now coming. We've read it this morning. We've sung it in our songs that long before time began, before the heavens and the earth were made, the triune God established the plan of salvation for His glory. The Father predestined in love to save those who are His, The Son came to accomplish His death through His death and resurrection, the great saving act that is ours. And the Spirit applies this salvation by quickening our hearts to trust in Christ alone. It's all by grace, and it's all for the glory of God that we have been saved. This great act of love bears fruit in our lives and that we are made holy and blameless in Christ Jesus. That is, we are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Further, God has adopted us as sons and daughters, as His children, to the praise of His glorious grace. Because in Christ we have redemption through His blood for the forgiveness of all our sins, according to the riches of God's grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on the earth. And so that now for all who are trusting and resting in Christ alone by faith, we can have full and lasting assurance that we have obtained this wonderful inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory and whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father, would you cause us to see this 
this, this glory that we read of, that for which you set in motion and accomplished the great rescue plan by sending your son to die in our place. Lord, we often don't comprehend it. We don't realize the gravity of our sin. So would you help us to see and to savor all that Christ is for us and that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. We thank you today for Jesus. May we rest in him and trust him and believe in him for the salvation of our souls. And Lord, as we walk, may we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. May that faith that we profess, that we trust in Christ, may it transform us in such a way that we don't walk in fear, that we don't walk mastered by worry or anxiety, that we don't walk in regret, but also, Lord, that we don't walk in unkindness or despondency or in strife or causing strife, or whatever it is, Lord, but may instead we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit as we trust Christ, as we walk through this life. Lord, only you can do this. We look to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.